I'm Taisha Thompson. I'm Eric Lyon. And I'm Wallace Lages. And this is The Inside Story, a podcast about building an institute for empathic and immersive narrative, supported by an American Council of Learned Societies Digital Justice Seed Grant. In this episode, Wallace, Eric, and I will be thinking through the role of empathy, access, and narrative in immersive technologies in conversation with our advisory board about ways to increase the accessibility of immersive technologies. Our full advisory board includes Riam Alieldin, Brian Carter, Damon Davis, Al Evangelista, and Ashley Shu. And of course, as a producer, Amanda Hodes and Joe Forte. I just had to mention them since this is our last recording and it ends the series, Building an Empathic Immersive Narrative. I have a question. What are some larger ideas and themes that we have addressed through our conversations in the podcast and our advisory board meetings that have really resonated with you? Well, I guess I can jump in there. Uh, one of the things that's resonated with me is um, how focused you are on getting the community involved in whatever decision making you're going to be uh, incorporating into this this particular project. I think that's so important. And uh, the more you can get there, uh, not just at the table, but helping to create the table, uh, that's really going to be very important to, uh, to get buy-in as well as sustainability. So I, I applaud you for that. Um, I think one thing that resonates with me is the idea of putting together specific teams around a story to help people. The storyteller might not be the best person to be equipped to tell it and vice versa, or maybe so, but the idea that you're open to, uh, I guess, facilitating stories of people that wouldn't get the opportunity to do so if they didn't have a certain set of skills or some um, some some divide that stops them from um, telling their stories is usually how we miss a lot of important stuff just because of knowledge base, resources. And I feel that it's a really good thing that you're committed to putting resources in the right place for people to tell these stories and not just, you know, giving people out there to the world. I think for me, and I know we have a lot of conversations in our uh, team meetings about accessibility. Uh, to the technology. So how can you provide access and who are you providing access to the technology to? And um, and just, you know, understanding and, and figuring out ways in which this technology can be there for, um, you know, like the whole idea of, of, of this program is underrepresented minorities and having this being available for people who need it and people who can, you know, have um, use it to tell their stories and um, reach out to to others. So I think accessibility was was, you know, one of the biggest themes that we went back and forth with. I guess I'm still thinking about how complex everything is on all the sides, how much we learn from each other, how much the folks will learn in the community that they make with the artists and the storytellers. Um, It's just so much and I'm so humbled by it. No, I mean, I've definitely been thinking a lot more about um, what it means to put together a story in ways that that are accessible, but also about the technologies and the skills needed to tell a story in the right way, um, uh, while remaining true to to voice. Um, 
and 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 working with a team with that means the, the, the complexity that Al points to, uh, but it threads through what everyone has been been saying um, in, in different ways and just putting that all together, but caring about the story, right? Like holding that as principle and then, you know, the teams you put together, the skills you put in, um, the sort of technologies that you try to provide access to, um, like all, all center around getting that voice and that narrative, you know, uh, authentic, uh, real, um, and, 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 and to keep it, you know, faithful um, um, and voice in different ways. So I really appreciate all the conversations you've had now. And just to piggyback on that, Ashley, you mentioned like story and, and telling the right story you said, and I'm wondering if, you know, is there a right way to tell a story or, you know, does it, how, you know, how can you say, you know, tell the story so that it's like you were saying, Ashley, that it's authentic, authentic, but at the same time, it, it changes, right? It depends on who's telling the story. And even the people receiving the story can be different, you know, from one person to another. So just, you know, how complicated and complex this process is and the bias that goes into it and how the responsibility of us, you know, as creators of this story to make it as authentic and as and unbiased as possible. You know, you know, that's one of the conversations that we kept having is who is this, who is this project for? Who is your audience? I mean, we kept coming back to that. And, you know, that harks on what you're talking about, Riam and Ashley, with regards to not only the story, how it's told, uh, you know, who tells it, uh, the tools they use, but also who your audience is, because that's going to then affect everything else that, that you know, is, is, is a part of this particular project. So, you know, you're, you're identifying the audience and sticking with that and not trying to, you know, paint a, a, such a wide swath that it's only it only hits the surface of everything i mean if you're focusing on on one particular audience or a demographic or two but not trying to hit everybody because you're never going to be able to you know you're never going to be able to solve everybody's problems or, or you know address everybody's needs or uh you know uh, satisfy everybody's uh you know desires with regards to what this project can do for them or their community you can't do that and so by focusing on one or two communities that you can do a really good job on is i think one of the the merits of this project now i'm glad y'all y'all listen to all the suggestions that we've been offering okay so let's let's try to get a little a little bit more from all you um so i, I mean Rihanna was saying that oh well is there a right way to tell a story right and some of you also mentioned that that you learn things from each other so like would you care like to talk a little bit about what did you like through this process right that have been going on um all these months talking about all these issues uh, what are the things that like surprised you maybe perhaps you're not expecting or maybe you didn't consider that that point of view before uh, or something that you really learned uh, with someone else's approach and now want to bring that into your own work uh, or maybe something that you really disagree and you know even today um, you think oh well someone said that but I don't really agree with that for x and y well, that developing a project like this is definitely not easy. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't know how, how guys you, you've been doing, you know, and, and figuring it out. And like, and I, but I know from our meetings, it, 
it, there's a lot to think about. There is a lot to consider. And, you know, we we are here because, you know, we want to serve our community. We're excited about the technology and, you know, we know its potential and we just want to do it the right way. But um, it, it can it can be hard. But um, I learned a lot from from this team. And I what I love is how, you know, how different our backgrounds are and different experiences that we all bring in. And um, how lovely and amazing everybody is in their in their field. So it has been a very um, interesting and rich experience for me. So I want to jump in uh, with a couple of things here. First of all, thank you for everything you've said um, so far. Uh, this is such a different experience than when we started out and we were just getting to know each other. And so it feels like we're, we're looking at some, some bigger ideas. Um, and so one, um, one thing I'd like to ask all of you is as, as you've been thinking from your own perspectives on, about the project that we're working on, um, are there any aspects where you think, that's never been done before, or that's not ever been done in quite that way before. Well, I can hop in there. Um, I think um, your willingness to um, uh, where you, I think at, at the beginning, you were uh, planning on uh, uh, members of the community coming to the campus for uh, some sort of workshop or, uh, you know, some kind of event or activity or something like that. And then through some of our feedback, um, you know, we were like, well, you know, maybe some people can't make that trip or don't want to make that trip or so why not go to where 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 the people are, as opposed to the other way around, and um, you know some some you know folks that are listening to a, a a committee like us wouldn't necessarily take that suggestion because they've got it all planned out, they've got the campus resources all all configured and everything, and they don't want they don't want to stray from that that template um, where I think you all have been very flexible, and so I, I don't see that very often. So um, that's one thing I, that I think hasn't been done very much before. I also think that this, you know, being um, being built in Virginia Tech in a, like a very big, uh, well-known academic institution and giving access to people who are not in academia can be an, a new thing. Usually, you know, when you have projects like this, you have them in the institution and in the academia and you have, you know, other students or professors or people who are already in academia working on those projects. But open thinking about opening this up for you know other people just you know people who are not necessarily studying or even have experience in taking courses or taking lectures and bringing them in and having them in a more structured format and exposing them to the technology i i think um is a new thing as well um i think just the very premise of using vr and immersive technology specifically around garnering and fostering human empathy. It's something that I hadn't heard of before um, I started talking about, especially in, uh, like Rihanna said, in, a, in an institution of this size and magnitude to take resources to think through how to help people treat each other better. It's not usually the, uh, the MO of, a, of any um, institution within Capitalism. I don't think. I think. Uh, I think empathy kind of hurts you in, in in this structure to be to be able to excel at what gets rewarded in in, in the current society. So this is kind of um, counter to the to the to, to the very fabric of what we're doing as a society right now. So I think that, that it, before you know on the on the on the broader uh, scale of, of specifically why you brought us together, 
that was something that I thought was very innovative. And I thought there was something very needed in the world we live in right now. I'm always really nervous. Like the question asks for us to comment on how novel something is. And I'm always really worried about making like, oh, this is, you know, this, this I, you know, my, my knowledge is very limited. Um, so I'm really worried um, um, about, you know, saying, well, this is incredibly novel. But I think it is like the conversations we've had, um, you know, I don't know if they're unique or not, but I think about sort of like the, the intellectual depth of this project um, with, with the, the community of, of people that you've brought together just to, to have these discussions in the first place. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning so much along the way and that, that's new to me. Um, some of it's about how we use these technologies. Some of it's about how we put teams together. Some of it's about like how we, how we tell stories. And, and I think these conversations, you know, together, um, I don't know if they're novel or not, but, um, are pretty exciting, um, to be part of, um, in so many ways. Um, so thank you. I'm with you, Ashley. I was like, I just said everything is complex. How can I call something novel at this point? So, um, but I do think the stories that will get told that are part of the Institute will be novel. And that's exciting, especially the way that they do it with all the technology that your resources that you're offering. If I may follow up again, and uh, I, I invite <laughs> our co-host to jump in at any time. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm loving all of this. And a word that I, I was hearing both from Brian and, and Ashley uh, is depth that really resonates that we're, you know, we're thinking about communication and thinking about, you know, what what draws somebody in because we're we want to elevate stories that that we don't very often get a chance to hear. And we want to elevate them in a way that uh, people who function in some way as an audience are going to be part of it. And um and, and as um, as a number of you, and especially Al had mentioned about the complexity of it, we're, we're you know, we're thinking, okay, so, you know, we've, uh, first of all, we are so incredibly grateful to every one of you on our advisory board for just in, innumerable lessons that, you know, we just wouldn't have thought of on, on our own. And now as, as we're thinking about the transition from, uh, theorizing to just making it happen, we have to we have to really you know take these lessons on board and, and make them real and depth um, making making depth happen or it, you can't make it happen. I mean, creating the environment for it to emerge seems really important. The other thing that I'm thinking about is uh, and and I think it, it was Ashley you had mentioned this you know combination of you know uh, team teamwork and technology. And stories, there are a lot of maybe yes, yeah, a lot of systems in in our society, and this also speaks to what you had mentioned, uh, Damon. A lot of a lot of systems in our society that tell stories, um, but if if there's maybe a distinction um, or one piece that's that feels different to me. Uh, and, and again, I think this is very much coming out of the guidance that, that we've had so far from, from all of you. It's that we're trying to lead with, with an ethical view of, of how, how to move forward on this. And so without going further on that, I, I'd like to ask, ask all of you, if um, what is your view of the, of the ethical piece of, of this project? And um, and any any advice as we make the transition from theorizing 
to practice that that we should bear in mind as we move forward? Well, I can I can take that. I think I think best practices uh, uh, once once we find the rhythm and roll or the order, you know the order operations. Once everything is done, you got a great project. All this sitting around, right? I think that there's one thing that we should be mindful of is the the shortcomings of humanity at some point and understanding, trying to figure out exactly what, what you want to get out of this. Because even if you do make people more empathetic, that don't, that's not going to stop people from hurting each other, I don't think. And that's not going to stop, you know, that's not going to stop every, every day sort of um, that things that things that, that people do in, in personal relationships and things of that nature. But I think if you can show the, the more we, the more we show and unveil different experiences and different ways of thinking, and different, uh, di- different, I guess, walks of life, different people to different to other different people. I think that's a good thing. But I just, um, you know, I, I would, I, I would just keep uh, a fair uh, look at keep patience and um, and I guess uh, non judgment when when things don't immediately turning the rainbows, I guess, because since this is such a uh, such a new thing, uh, or, and again, um, I'm going to ask you, I don't know what I don't know. It might not be a new thing. It, it's, it's new to me, though. So so I think that uh, we're we not trying, we're not trying nothing new as, as far as a way to bring people together. It's just this, uh, this particular tactic um, might be, might need some, some, uh, some room to work out the kinks. So that's all I'm saying. Like, like, like also be kind to yourself. When if, if things don't move exactly the way you want to, just because of, uh, whenever you involve people in things, they don't go the way we plan. Plans are great until people get involved. So, so I just would like to, you know, put that out there to just be, you know, uh, not cautious, but just be ready to roll with, with, with what you get. You know, one of the other things that y'all may consider is, and I sort of hinted at this earlier, um, and you're kind of already doing this, whereby you're already uh, involving the community in, in decisions and, and you know, planning of this project, um, maybe even considering pushing that envelope a little bit further. And if you can involve one or two key community leaders um, and involve them as far as the merits and, and how uh, the, this project may uh, may uh, help their communities in, in, in a variety ways get them on board and then if they introduce it to their own communities with you in tow saying look these are the resources we can use to tell our stories as opposed to having it flipped whereby you're saying these are the resources you can use to tell your story you see how it's that's that comes off differently and so by doing it that way uh you might get even wider buy-in uh because you're not coming in even though you're not it, it you're not doing this purposefully it could be perceived that you're coming in as this you know sort of you know savior of the community with all these resources and that kind of thing um so y- you might consider just pushing that a little bit further and um and just sort of stepping into the into the you know into the background just a little bit and let let uh, one or two community leaders sort of lead this initiative after you've got sort of a scaffolding uh, created that they have bought into, perhaps. Okay, can you say that one more time for the people in the back um, about how you were flipped that? You said this is how you, you could say it, and then you said the the way that you will say it if you were thinking like you're saving people. Can you say that one more time if you remember? 
Right. So, um, you know, there, there's a way that when, when, we, when we do projects from an institutional level and we're, we're collaborating with communities, uh, even though we try to avoid it by involving the community and the planning that we're doing or what have you, it still could be perceived that we are uh, a group with a lot of resources that's not necessarily from that community that's coming into this community, trying to galvanize partnerships, maybe even to get more grant resources into our space, but yet we're, you know, maybe spreading a little bit of that around to the community. You're not doing that, but it could be perceived that way. Whereas the other way to maybe uh, flip this around or even to push the margin that you're already beginning to uh, to to begin to push even further is to um, get one or two or more uh, community leaders involved in this initially and have them uh, become aware of the resources that you have available and then have them approach their own communities and say, look, this is an opportunity that we have. Here are the resources that we can make use of to tell our stories, as opposed to it coming across as high community. These are the resources that we can help you use to tell your story. So it, it comes across as a more of an empowerment thing if if they are the the, the full leaders, whereas um, uh, your 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 group is, is is taking more of a background, um, but you're providing the resources to these leaders so that they can take full control over everything that's happening with this project. And and I agree with you, Brian. I think you're, you're bringing up a very important point, and I think it brings us to trust and you know building this trust because what what would make people trust this institution to come in and tell their stories and be vulnerable and and you know how are you going to use those stories what you know how is it going to benefit them so i think um two key words or things that brian was talking about is building trust and also to empower people and this also made me think about the importance of inclusion and representation and making everybody feel or know that they are heard, right? So just creating this safe environment where people feel safe to participate, safe to, you know, go against each other and collaborate. And um, so I think this is a, would be an important part of this project as well. And some we haven't talked about very much that we may that you all may want to consider is okay. So you've got these stories. Where are they going to be stored? Who's going to be hosting them? IP, all that kind of thing. I mean, if there's a way to empower those communities so that they have ownership and storage, you know, and all you know everything, and 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 they have to give you permission to use stuff. Mm -hmm. So you know that way it's it's theirs. I mean, there is their stories. Why why should they be stored on maybe a server that's at at your campus, where then they feel even more detached and more separated from parts of themselves that they may or may not be able to access whenever they want to or or use however they want to. It's interesting, um, Brian. Right before you shared that, which is why I asked you to repeat it, I was thinking about, um, I had a conversation, I think with Eric, about, um, I, I think I wanted gospel music to be represented as a, a part of the story. Um, and when right before you said that, I was thinking, oh, I, you probably should reach out to some pastor and ask. And it was just so interesting that you were, you were like, talk to a leader of a community. So that was, you know, it just resonated what I was thinking internally. Um, so thank you again for that. 
because I think gospel music is a channel. It's it's storytelling. It's empathy, and it seems like it'll be nice um, in in a virtual environment or even spatial audio. You know, because depending on the community, it could be jazz or it could be um, you know maybe some sort of Afro Caribbean or you know Afro beats or whatever. Because uh, all those forms of music could tell some kind of story that resonates with that that particular community in some way. Exactly. Could be I'm going to just go go there. This is a little bit of a detail, but it's a detail I love so much that I'm going to just kind of throw it out there because Brian, you had mentioned the issue of, of uh, intellectual property, and um, there there is certainly a question to me about. Well, it's not even a question. If if there were a way to monetize the intellectual property. I think our idea would be that all of the proceeds would go to the individuals and the community. I wouldn't see any of that, any, any funds coming back to the university. But there, there is, there are some really such weird things happening with intellectual property and, and have happened um, for uh, quite, quite a while now. Uh, there's a recent Supreme Court case of having to deal with a uh, you know a, a Prince photograph and an Andy Warhol, uh, you, you know it's, it was sort of like who who owned any of that and and a a surprising uh, surprising surprisingly passionate defense of of uh, fair use in in the dissent, but there's an on the one hand as as a creative artist. I have a hard idea with the idea of intellectual property. If if I look over, you know, the history of something I know fairly well, which is Western art and music, everybody's borrowing from everybody, everybody's stealing from everybody, um, and all of that happened uh, under a, uh, in the absence of the intellectual property regime that we now have currently. If if we did have the intellectual property regime where, you know, you use the wrong three notes and you get sued, you know, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, it just wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. You would have had something very, very different. At the same time, um, there there is a um, a musicologist who's been working, uh, Matthew Morrison, who's been working on the concept of uh, what he's calling black sound, which is a, a, a new kind of epistemology for, for sound, understanding sound through the creation of self and through various myths of, of race and the way that certain kinds of things could be made into intellectual property and certain things not. And he, he speaks uh, particularly about the idea of black performance intellectual property that the way that certain kinds of music were performed uh, by, by black artists that then later were imitated by white artists like uh, Elvis, for example, could not be um, copyrighted. And so therefore were appropriated as free. Whereas the second Elvis recorded that record, um, somebody owned the copyright. So there, there are all kinds of really, really interesting issues that come up when you think about intellectual property in the context of, of social justice. So um, ha having brought that up, I, I wonder, does that suggest any other things that we should be thinking about in, in our efforts to maintain uh, an ethical stance as as we move forward. 
educating the community about what IP is and how it can change. And I think that's going to be key with regards to, because a lot, a lot of people in, 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 in the community, you know, might know what copyright is, but they don't know how far it extends. They might not even realize that they have a, a intellectual property and in, in anything they create or whatever the case might be, people might just, so there's, there's maybe levels of understanding of what IP is as well as how in, in today's climate, how that's going to change as, as we become more technologically advanced as, you know, everything is evolving, right? And so by, by educating folks on, on, on their own IP and how they should protect it early on, because you never know what's going to happen next year, even, um, and, and how then they're protected, that's going to be so um, important with regards to making sure the community, once again, like Ram said, establishing trust. So, and, and, and then keeping in mind, you know, how, how you keep, when I think about monetization, you mentioned this, uh, uh, Eric, it's so interesting. You know, we work with a lot of uh, indigenous communities out here in the West, and I'm learning that, you know, that there are some protections that indigenous communities have on their, on everything regarding their culture that they only let out if it's if it's absolutely necessary or if they get tribal approval, all those kinds of things. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But so when I th- when and, and, and monetization would never be a part of those conversations. And so when I think about monetization of you know uh, of a community's IP, I go right back to where 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 you went, Eric, with regards to how black bodies have been monetized in so many different ways, even through the performative that it just it just gets stuck into that category when anything related to monetization is a part of the initial conversation. Now, if folks want to monetize their stuff later on, maybe they can learn how to do that, but I wouldn't even I wouldn't even touch that with a 10-foot pole initially at least. Just my opinion. <laughs> I I'm so excited about this particular question and Brian's answer. I've been thinking a lot about um like how like we know that hostile design exists. Um, so I work in philosophy of technology. There's some really great work on like, and there's work that calls itself anti anti homeless devices, right? So po- pointing out things in our built infrastructure that are meant to deter, say, homeless people uh, from from existing in public spaces, um, you know, benches with awkward setups, uh, different spikes so that people can't lay down, etc. Um, you know, I, and there've been interesting conversations about access. So when we think about a lot of our built environment, when we think about a lot of how we set things up, we're actually we're actually creating hostile spaces for disabled people, right? When they tell me that the one ramp is around the back of the building, um, um, that that that's a way of setting up. We think about how laws have done this um, in different ways to keep various groups in and out. There's been some really interesting um, and fun work, and this is, I'm finally going to answer your question, right, Eric, uh, by, by, um, uh, a poet called, uh, uh, the cyborg Jillian Visa. And the cyborg Jillian Visa collected all of these, uh, words disabled people, like, coined, um, to describe parts of our existence on Twitter, had, like, lots of people, um, um, coming up with all these words together. But the question was, like, how, how do we make these words ours? Right, that this isn't for other people, um, and 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 Sai has done this before with with trying to have like an all disabled party. How do you have a party that's just disabled people? Once you make it accessible, non disabled people can get in, and we don't want them, um, right? So so the, the question of like how do you reverse this? Because once you make things accessible, it's more accessible for everybody. But that means that people 
that people can't get in, um, who you might want to leave out um, in particular ways. So um, Sai has actually, the only way you can get the dictionary of new words is if you can read Braille. Um, Sai's handing out copies only in Braille. Um, and of course, that's leaving out some disabled people, a lot of disabled people, very few people who aren't blind know how to read Braille, um, right? But it, but it was a way of talking about like offering particular formats was a way of restricting and, and usually we talk about accessibility as a positive value. Um, and the idea that we all deserve equal access to everything is, is like a key tenet of, 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 say, the disability rights movement. But there's newer lines like in disability justice work. Um, Disability justice uh, is a movement uh, from a whole bunch of uh, queer, trans, uh, black and indigenous uh, people of color in the San Francisco Bay Area disabled um, uh, who have talked about, you know, interdependence as important, about cross movement solidarity. But the conversation around disability justice is not usually everyone deserves equal access to everything. Um, and particularly in talking with indigenous groups, maybe there are some spaces only indigenous people should access or have control over. Um, and those conversations, I mean, it's beyond the scope of intellectual property, but when I'm thinking about the narratives we're telling, they're not just the thing that's written down or the thing that's performed. Um, but what we're really talking about is like, who, who gets, who gets to know and have this and incorporate it into their lives? And, and I don't think that's as easy as it's for everybody. Um, and I, I don't know that the goal should be that it's for everybody. And I know I care about access and inclusion um, as a disabled person, but but that's from a history of exclusion, right? And maybe there should be things that I am also excluded from as someone who is part of some parts of dominant culture. And that that's a hard pill to swallow, especially, um, you know, in an age where everyone wants open access, everything, uh, you know, I think of the cyborg Jillian Weiss uh, asking if I want the, a braille copy of the dictionary that we've co-created as a group. Um, you know, what, what that can mean is, you know, so often people are given things they don't have access to, um, or that they shouldn't, but do because of how we've set things up. So that's a long aside, but um, I'm the question's a really interesting one. And I don't think it's as, as easy as intellectual property, especially when we're dealing with historically marginalized communities. There's a, a, a power issue that comes out from what you said, Ashley. And thank you for that comment. That was so important because it, it's basically who gets to define what their sp sacred spaces are. Um, and in a perfect world, and this is, you know, responding again to Damon's observation that it's not a perfect world. In a perfect world, we would all respect each other's boundaries. And you wouldn't need power to protect something. You'd say, this is my private space. Don't go there, please. Um, but with that not being the case, yeah, I, th I think your question, your, your point that there, there could be good exclusion as, as well as bad exclusion. That's really interesting. I, I'm very aware of um, what I think of as invisible, invisible exclusion, um, you know, as part of, you know, what's very often referred to as the hidden curriculum. And so as, as a music person um, in a, a kind of a typical music department, there is an expectation that if you cannot read um, notation, uh, common practice, uh, Western notation, you can't get in. But why? I mean, there's so much music that has nothing to do with notation. Um, 
Uh, and there, there are there there's music that um, well, again, it's a power thing. You know, you say like, this is a valid form of music. This is this is high art. This is low art. Uh, a violin is a real instrument. A drum machine is not a real instrument. Um, I, I mean, from from any reasonable perspective, these these things do not make sense. But power is not about making sense. It's about saying these 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 are the things that are okay. These are the things that are not okay. So I think that that's a really powerful um, intervention from you, Ashley. So so thank you for um, for that. I, I, I'm really, um, because we haven't heard Al uh, so much from, from you, but because I think that this maybe goes a lot to your your own uh, artistic practice, I, I'd love to hear some, some of your thoughts about um, this, you know, the intersection between um, spaces that are private, spaces that are um, available for us to learn from, especially in the context of the body. So would you have anything to share with us? I knew I was going to get called out on this, or called in. I was, I knew I was going to get called in. But um, it kind of links to when Wallace was talking about or asked about what we've been inspired by in the group, there was one meeting where Brian said, have you heard of move.ai? Do you, do you do anything with that? And I was like, no, I'm good. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, dang, I should use this. <laughs> and I, and I've been using it for this new project called places I can't dance. So I'm, I have my augmented reality, um, where I'm putting my body in augmented reality, but I'm thinking about places that I can't go to for practical or impractical reasons um, or places I'm not allowed to be in, places that I'm excluded, all of that. Um, but it's also an interesting question. I was thinking about choreography as intellectual property because it's it's still not very well defined how choreography, I mean, Beyonce gets sued all the time about and, and wins some and loses some depending on what type of movement or style gets imitated, right? Because it, it can't just be the movement that's imitated. That's not um, copyright infringement has to be like the particular style with the theme and the like everything has to pair together so it's an interesting question in terms of how we're going to choreograph or ask people to choreograph bodies to tell their story and it not be their story anymore like how do we make sure that the way they move is still is still theirs after it's done and so that's what I was trying to think of um it doesn't really answer your question in terms of my artistic practice, but um, those are the things that are that are circulating. What about you, Damon? You, you know, a multimedia artist, you do work with the body um, as well. Um, do you have any thoughts about Eric's question? I'm still kind of thinking about what Ashley said, and and and, mm -hmm. and in a way that I'm I'm. I'm on that side and I've been on that side for a very long time until I run into a space that I can't get into. Right. And then I think, oh, and this is like the, the, all of the, all of the, the math can add up, you know, all of, all of my, my moral views. But when I feel, um, I guess that, that I can't access something, I, I, I go back to why we sitting here as far as empathy, because if, if the, if the idea is to put a story into a container 
so that you can hand empathy to somebody. And that's the most basic, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. I understand that. But the idea that you're trying to get garner empathy from somebody that ain't like you, then how do you do that in in, in this specific context? If, it ain't, if, if you don't want them in, then how do they ever learn who you are? And, and 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 look, and I mean, I got real problems with, you know, um, at least with how the country is treated me and my people. And and constantly when we talk about co- copyright from the way people dress, the way they talk. But none of that, you know what I'm saying? None of that is like that's just like we own the cow. So we get the milk, too. At, at least that's the analogy that I've been using. You know what I'm saying? But but even in that, if I'm here specifically to talk to somebody that don't understand the way I'm the, the, where I'm coming from. And I don't, and then at the same time, I don't want them to have access to it. It's kind of a catch-22 because if you want to protect yourself in these things that you care so much about, the, the, the culture, the culture that you come from and the culture that you have to create every day and, and one that you had to build because you were constantly defending your humanity and, and, a, and, a, and a constant onslaught of trying to tear you apart. But at the same time, how do you, if, if somebody don't see you as human, and if you kind of turn it around, like I don't trust them either, then, then they ain't human. I don't know how what, what, what we kind of have to still make. So that's what I've been trying to just. I've been over here trying to think through and on a realistic, tangible uh, level. How how do we do that? And then I come to the point that maybe you're not trying to empathize with nobody that ain't like you. You trying to go, you trying to gain enough empathy in the group that you in that that we all the same. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if because of the way society is shaped, it makes you feel isolated when you're not. When there's somebody right, you know what I'm saying? When all over the globe is people with 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 your story. You know what I mean? And so so that um yeah, that's what that and, and and I think that can be applied to like physical space. And and but but not only that, like there there were the you know, cultural things that 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 uh um it's free range when black people make it up from from slang it like before we get off, somebody gonna say something that ain't that you know what I'm saying that ain't black that has become a, a thing that 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 everybody says uh is cool or uh straight up or what you know what I'm saying all of these things, but but s- somehow they they find their way into the uh, greater society and I just it's just a very tricky thing because we already in a deficit. So so I understand trying to con- like save what you got, right? But but uh. We know the other side ain't finna, the other side doesn't care enough because they already win. They don't care enough to be empathetic. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, like they don't, so, so it's just always, uh, uh, the older I get, it's a, it's a rougher question for me to answer. Um, how, how you do that, how you protect yourself while still having an open heart. Um, yeah, that basically. So that's, that's what I've been going through over there <laughs> in my head. Thank you for that, Riam. I saw you lean in. Are you going to respond to that as a physician and an instructor of future physicians? <laughs> Not as a physician, but I was thinking, like all these conversations and what we're talking about, got me thinking about our own um, team meetings where we were talking about, so who should we include? What are the sto- stories that would need to be told, you know, and it got I and now I feel bad when I'm thinking it was this the right thing to do like we we need to let go of power right although you know um, we we're developing this institution and and you know we will you Virginia Tech will be providing the resources and you guys are developing this whole program but at some point you will need to let go 
and, and, you know, empower those who are coming in and give them the power to decide. So I was just thinking about our own conversations and whether, um, you know, we were uh, trying to, to take too many decisions that we shouldn't be taking and whether we should let it be more come from the people who are coming in and not just, you know, try to find, you know, figure out or a, a list of the topics that we think is important or the, the stories that we think that needs to be told or how they should be told, but rather how can you give power to the people so that they can, you know, bring in their own stories and they make the decisions and, you know, be Virginia Tech, just be like, um, you know, the host or the place where, you know, they can grow and, and develop those things instead of, again, you know, us telling them what to do. So I was just like thinking about like revisiting some of our conversations and what we were saying. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Riam. And I think a part of asking that question and consistently coming back to it, because the power that is the funders require answers like that require that kind of control over the narrative you provide them. So it by default a lot made us come from that framework. Like we have to have the people, we have to have some level of control. And it's a really good point. And going back to, I think what Brian said earlier about taking some of the advice about being flexible and changing aspects of the Institute in a way that I don't know, like, even going to the communities that we said, we don't know where these communities are because we haven't selected these people. I always think about this grant that we submitted. And if the funders or the people reviewing it will be like, well, they don't even know the people. Where are they going to go? How are they? Like, I can, I can just hear this in my head. So I'm like, I'm wondering, like, is that going to stop us from getting the money because we didn't define the community because we're so open about the possibility of going somewhere. We don't know that where, where that where is. Um, and so, yeah, I think that framework directly came from the funders and, and the, the power that they have over the kind of responses that they expect to get. So, yeah. Maybe we should include the, this in the proposal then and say that we, you know, we don't want to have control this much control on on who we want to be, mm -hmm. you know, the people who are coming in or what type of stories that we are specific about and sort of, you know, let's change that. Because like yes, you said, they, the I, power I is that. with the funders and the people giving the resources. And again, it all goes back to those in power, you know, just making the decisions for, for, for other people. So mm -hmm. maybe we can change that and have something about that in the proposal. Like this is intentional. We are letting yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel that. And I, I think that's, that's the, the goal, um, to kind of craft the grant writing in a process in a way that allows for that flexibility and show that it's intentional and that there are you know, that it's not willy nilly, you know, we're not just doing any old thing that comes up. It does have scaffolding, but we're not going to build the building until we know who we're building it with. Yeah. And, and I, oh, go ahead. Well, and, and just add, you know, flexi flexibility is one of the principles of universal design. And I think you could sell it as an okay. access feature um, um, as you write this grant. And I have some language Thank I can you. help you with if you'd like it. What were you going to say, Rian? 
No, I was going, I was thinking about Eric's question for me last time when I finished uh, uh, recording my podcast. And he asked me, like, do you think, like, you know, what kind of stories do you think should be included? And I know I mentioned the refugee uh, people from refugee camps. And I was thinking also about Asian hate after COVID as one of the stories. But again, now I'm thinking, who am I to say which stories are important and which are not, right? Or, or you know, you need to, uh, or if you, you know, you need people to tell you which stories are important, then you need to make sure that you have a team that's as, you know, as much diverse as you can and from, you know, in, and include people so that you can, you know, see what what needs to be told but again i don't now after <laughs> talking about this i don't feel it's right that we make the decision of what's important or what needs to be told and what not thank you we are reached our time and i just wanted to thank you all for all of your advice guidance our meetings just talking to one another learning from one another resources, even our individual conversations with the podcast recordings. I, I've really enjoyed this experience and the contributions of all of you. Um, so thank you again. Um, I just want to thank you all for um, just being with us for the last, I think it was, it's been nine months and we did this ahead of time. So we were planning to record podcasts well into the summer but we managed to get a lot of information and have our meetings um, ahead of schedule. So I just thank you for being flexible with all of your schedules. And um, I, I think our audiences are really going to enjoy what you're sharing on the podcast. And once we finish our white paper, we'll definitely disseminate it to you. And hopefully we get this first, um, this grant that we submitted in February and we'll give you an update on that as well. This week, we have wrapped up our inquiry into empathy, access, and immersive storytelling. We look back on our prior conversations and thought about what we've learned and how we can channel that into the future of our Institute for Empathic Immersive Narrative. Our advisory board helped us to think critically about ways to increase the accessibility of immersive technologies. They've also suggested best practices for cultivating trust and empowerment within our community of storytellers. We've even considered the importance of intellectual property and individuals' ownership over their own stories. Wallace, what are some takeaways that you have from our conversation with the entire advisory board? Okay, so there's a cluster of ideas that that came in that I thought were really quite interesting, I think are sort of related. Uh, the question has come up again and again in our conversations, who is the audience? Who are we speaking to? And this seems like both a small question and a big question. Uh, it seems like at every level of society, whether it's you know entertainment, advertising, education, people are trying to figure out who are the people that you're actually talking to. And people are realizing, especially in, in this very strange pandemic uh, era, 
you know, people are changing. And so you might have thought your audience was one way, but they've changed as, as a result of these experiences. So I think a lot of people are asking the, that question, and that's a question for us to maybe sort of keep um, on the front burner. So we're constantly thinking about that. Uh, other related ideas that came up really quickly were the idea of giving access to people who are not in academia. And this mm-hmm. is an idea that came from, from Damon. And Damon pointed out very early uh, when, when the group uh, visited us on campus of Virginia Tech, you know, their, their eyes were wide at like, oh, there's all this amazing technology and wow, this is incredible. And most people in their daily life will never have any access to it. So what is, what is the value of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that seemed like a really important question. It's, it's obviously um, a question of ec- equity. Um, and it, it also raises a question of, well, what can we do to provide some, some access to some, some, of that, um, some of that technology? And a third idea, again, from Damon, which is in, in ethical space once again, was suggesting using resources of the magnitude that we see at, at universities uh, to help teach each other how to treat one another better. And that's not usually something, the kind of question that gets asked in academia. I mean, it's, it's more like, what is your research question? And assemble all the data and have a look to see if it makes any sense. And then, you know, try to make a, con- a contribution to, uh, to knowledge. But this idea of using resources to teach people to treat one another better I mean, that definitely feels like something that's in empathy space. That's, that's mm-hmm. something that we would hope would come out of empathy. And he also mentioned um, a counter to, to capitalism. And I think that, you know, obviously capitalism is such a complicated uh, system that there's, there's no way to kind of figure out what it means. And lots of people have different ideas mm-hmm. of what it actually is. But one, one of the, one of the, problems that seems to come up again and again is that you've got different strata and different classes of, uh, of people within the society. And this is also not just true of, of capitalist societies and their, their interests are not aligned. And so mm-hmm. um, then, then there's a question of you know, power where you've got people who have a lot of power. They just don't feel that they necessarily have to consider the... Um, the needs of, of, of people in, you know, in different strata. And I think a perfect example of that, that we're seeing right now in the real world is the, uh, the writers and actors strike in, mm-hmm. in Hollywood, because, you know, you're seeing that there are people with hugely uh, disparate incomes and um, some economic and technological um, trends that are leading to the people who are making the least um, money in, in, in this situation now making much less than they ever did. Um, and meanwhile, that does not seem to be a, um, of great concern to the people who are running the show on, on the other side of things. So 
if if there's a, a question of, of people thinking about how to treat one another better um, as as opposed to maximizing value for shareholders, that that might be, you know, where there it's it's a different point of view. It 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 um, it doesn't accept that uh, the view that you know this kind of maximizing profits, uh, getting getting as much money as possible, is kind of uh, an indisputably um, axiomatic uh, idea for how society should work. So I think that that's really interesting. What is the audience? Um, how do we get access to people who um, who don't have who don't have access to the technologies that we have in academia, but who might do some really amazing things. And in the context of giving those, um, bringing such people in, 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 um, in proximity with those technologies, um, allowing for the possibility to explore better ways of being together. You say it so much, Eric, like, I was thinking about, <laughs> it feels like it's going to go off topic. Um, but I was thinking even about this writer strike, how, you know, just being better, you know, for each other and empathy. A part of that, you when you were mentioning shareholders, like, you do want to like it's up to the shareholders also to decide how they want companies to be you know run and managed and that's the people right and people ultimately the shareholders are deciding that to certain extent certain people don't matter <laughs> um to a certain extent but I, it also made me think about on a, a much, much smaller scale, the kind of work that we're doing and Virginia Tech as a land grant university that a part of the work that we're doing um, and is for the people, particularly because we're state funded to a certain extent. And a lot of the grants that we receive are from the government. <laughs> and so it goes right back to the people and that the people already have access to these technologies. It's more about if the people feel comfortable with stepping into the space of the university or universities that are in proximity to where they live. Um, is it a welcoming space for them? Is it a space where they feel that they um, have liberty to create and just walk in a library and take out, you know, check out a book because they have a state you know, ID or not, you know, just so I, I think a part of what we're saying um, or what you were saying is about creating an atmosphere where people feel like they can step into what's already theirs. And sometimes that's just the feeling. Totally. I mean, even you mentioned the, uh, the question of walking into a library. It's like, when you walk into a library, do you feel that you are surveilled and that people mm -hmm. might, you know, have an expectation that you're going to steal a book? I mean, do, do you do you, I mean, there's a kind of a, um, is there a security slash surveillance, uh, you know, feeling to it that makes you uh, maybe feel that you don't belong there? Or is it just kind of welcoming? Like we've got all these these, these great things. I mean, yes, you can, you can't just walk off with a book because we'd like it back eventually. But <laughs> You know what I mean? 
or even libraries and spaces that, you know, are, you know, you don't have to check out a book, but it's just the technologies are there as well. You know, the green screens. Can you go in and just do a recording using the the technology at the facilities? Um, since we're, you know, reading um, less physical books and reading articles and things online. Um, yeah, just the, it's just a thought. Even, uh, even not to even point out the library, but even my office. Someone, you know, happens to be on campus, would they feel at liberty to find Shanks Hall and be like, I'm about to see Taisha and see what she's talking about. Like, it's a it's an open space. Um, and if we're asking to get in people's minds and, you know, perhaps even their private lives with them sharing stories using these technologies, I think it should be a two way street with the access that we're giving them to us as well. What do you think, Wallace, about this? Yeah, I was trying to think in, in in general, right? Like thinking about okay, what what did we came up with in the end, right? After having talked to so many people uh, and had so many interesting discussions, and even going back and thinking about like what was success su- successful, right? What was successful in the end? And I think I think one thing that there is one like strong positive aspect is that the group's so different, right? I think this is the thing that's mm-hmm. stuck with me uh, along all these like these episodes and the discussions that we had. How everyone had a different perspective, right? We invited them talking with the the premise. Oh, we're going to discuss something that's going to be around empathic immersive narratives, right? Which is somewhat broad topic um mm-hmm. and i guess in a certain sense they also didn't have a a good idea of what they were getting into <laughs> right so everyone came uh like united by just just broad ideas and in a certain sense us as well right we did know about uh True. the ones that we invited uh but at least for myself i didn't have i wasn't prepared to hear so many different concerns, right? Um, so there were some people who are like concerned about like the the exclusive nature of the technology, like like you just mentioned, Eric, uh, about equity and about, okay, how are we gonna bring this fancy um, like headsets and, and it's, uh, surround audio systems uh, to people who actually build things and can use that to uh, talk about their own ideas. Then we had some that talked about uh, like the misunderstanding that that their group feels, right? And and some in some sense in saying that, oh, I'm I'm afraid that this is gonna continue with this new technology, right? So we shouldn't be we shouldn't be worried about the the specifics of it, but rather how to prevent these things from from happening again and. Uh, using them as a way to create like safe spaces for this like these communities to grow and flourish, even if that requires like excluding mm-hmm. everyone else. But until that group has enough strength to to go out uh, in the open, right? Um, some people look into the the practical issues of of the technology or practical practical uses of the technology, right? How how we can use it to actually make a change on on 
on everyday's lives of people, right? Um, and then other people look like, okay, this is about narratives. So let's let's think about stories, mm -hmm. right? And and how a story should be used, right? To uh, as a means to like advocate for people, right? So it doesn't really matter if we are the only ones with access. Let's do something with it, right? Let's let's take the the position that we have with access and and be aware that it's all there's all these people around us that doesn't doesn't have the same ability to reach others and let's let's help them to, to talk about their stories right and then finally there was some people who were like yeah this is super nice but it will only work as um as long as other people are open to receive the message that comes through it right uh, right which there is a connection that goes deeper than the technology that goes deeper than the narrative uh, mm -hmm. that goes deeper than this like technical aspects of okay training transfer whatever those things that we we we, we talk about VR and then we should we should be looking into how how can we make people connect themselves in a you know on a deeper level um, which also fits well with when we talk about empathy uh, so I think those are the things that, that surprised me the most, right? So we, we came into it without knowing exactly what we're getting and we, we select awesome people uh, and they also were like open uh, to express mm -hmm. their different yeah. concerns, right? Uh, how each one saw this, this, this subject. And, and I think that was very, a very happy thing that, that, that happened. Um, and just the, the diversity, I think it's is what I, I'm bringing with me, right? Like, oh, instead of just thinking about the single aspect, but thinking about this as a multifaceted, uh, you know, problem, which maybe just looking at one thing won't be enough, right? We should be looking into all those different dimensions at the same time. That was a good summation, Wallace. Thank you. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, that I think you're absolutely right about, Wallace, and I hadn't thought about it quite this way before, is that a lot of the lessons that we've learned in this process really transcend the technologies. And the technologies continue to evolve, but since we're thinking about how, how do we navigate technologies, institutions, and people from different cultures, there's, there's a lot there that, um, that could work or not work. Um, with with different technologies and and one thing um, there are a couple of other points that came up that I, I think were really uh, sort of sort of aligned with that idea one one of one of the concerns that was raised was that it could be perceived by, by the people that we actually eventually start working with that we as a group the organizers um, are not from the community or communities of the people mm -hmm. who are coming. Uh, to us, and that might lead to, let's say, some justifiable distrust or not being sure if you can uh, trust the partnership. In other words, is it uh, is it extractive rather than um, empowering, or maybe maybe that isn't even the language that people would be thinking of. And um, I mean that that's a reminder that. There's, 
whenever groups of people or communities encounter each other and they, they have different mindsets, different assumptions, there's always going to be some kind of an exchange. Uh, there's, there's going to be, um, in, in the best part, there, there will be a, um, a release of latent theory. In, in the sense that there are so many things about one's own society that one just takes for granted, just assumes that that's the only way that it could be. But the second that you, you're in contact with people who maybe think about things differently, you, you can um, and perhaps should start questioning some of your own assumptions about your own society. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's through that openness to exchange that you have the possibility for everybody to learn and uh, cultivate a more trust-based situation for everybody. Yeah, and I guess in a microcosm way, uh, that was what happened, right? Like when we brought these different people together, coming from, you know, practitioners and, you know, from academic and from an art perspective and from, right? And... We also had like our little <laughs> of that that moment of trying to understand and share with each other uh, what really matters there, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, there are a couple of other observations that came up that I think that are just kind of completely on, on the same page with what we just talked about. Um, somebody had asked um, who gets to divine what the sacred spaces are. And that's clearly a power yeah. question. Um, but it also, um, you know, invites us to think, you know, you know, when we walk into our studios, we don't necessarily think of them as sacred spaces, but maybe, maybe we should. <laughs> and, uh, and also because of that question of, you know, defining the space, um, it lead, it leads to the question of, is there good versus bad exclusion? Um, is there individual exclusion? That's that's definitely an accessibility question. When we start talking about technologies and there are some people we say, oh, well, you know, this person um, is deaf, for example. Oh, well, they can't use audio. Maybe that's not the right person. And, you know, immediately you should be, we should be checking ourselves on that. I mean, that's... Um, that's where I think, uh, you know, some, some of the built-in assumptions might get questioned. Um, and I think likewise there, you know, one of the last points that, or last question that came up was how do we decide what, what stories are important? So I think that, you know, those, those ideas taken to, together, you know, thinking about the possibility that you, that you actually might be creating a sec- sacred space. Again, that's not how we think about things in academia usually is <laughs> we're you, you know spending a lot more time thinking about things like value engineering. <laughs> it's like what what are the things that we can, you know, do do without to make the budget uh line up. <laughs> but uh you know, if you create a sacred space, then all of a sudden there are these questions about who gets invited in, who does not, um who are you, who are you excluding without even realizing that you're excluding them? And and that's where I think that question of you know what stories are important maybe that's that's a question that's a question that is really asking to be um, rethought mm-hmm. actively and continuously because we might think we know what stories are important and we might be totally wrong. I think. Um... 
what's resonating with me right now, I don't even know if it makes sense, is about, in terms of what you were saying, Eric, about sacred space, um, feels like it's more about ritual and intentionality that sometimes we have rituals and we don't think of them as rituals and maybe we don't even know them as rituals, but there are things that we habitually do before we do the thing that we do, the work that we do, the practice that we do. And if we were more intentional about how our presence, our embodiment in the spaces that we occupy and how we work, then we can be more cognizant of how we work with others and invite others into a ritual, our ritual space, or be more cognizant if our rituals are maybe not, are not aligned with how the other person may need to practice. And so if we're sharing the space to do a similar kind of work, then maybe we just need to be more intentional about who we are in that space and not necessarily just think about ourselves, but the others who are, um, happen to be around us. Um, that's what sacred space could sound like or could be behaved, you know, like in a workspace for me. Like I can see myself like not walking in my office and doing the thing that I do, but, but saying, this is what I usually do and you can join me, but I, I may need a moment to kind of process. Um, just because somebody else is with me <laughs> while I'm doing it. Yeah, that's my thought. Um, I don't know what that looks like in a workshop with maybe, you know, 12 other people or so, but I think it's something that we could think through so that we're not stepping on each other's feelings <laughs> in the process. I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, I resonate a little bit with what happened with the spatial music workshop that we created for uh, CubeFest uh, when, when we had the Afrofuturist theme. And there was something about the environment that worked out such that some extraordinary conversations happened that would not have happened if, um, if the instructor had if, if the instructors had been rigidly going down the, the very carefully assembled syllabus. There was, there was something about that space that just opened up to places that nobody could have predicted. And then we just kind of went with it. So I think that that, that, that would be kind of the best outcome. We all, we all get surprised. We all learn things. And most important of all, those of us who have a little bit more power in the institutional relationship are not imposing our own limitations on what happens. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we thank you. Thank you, ACLS, for your support of our podcast and our project. Thank you to our advisory board members for your contributions. Damon Davis, Riam Alieldin, Ashley Shu, Brian Carter, and Al Evangelista, who were all guests on this episode. Special thanks to Amanda Hodes, our assistant to our advisory board.
Thank you, VT Publishing and Joe Fort for producing this podcast. I'm Taisha Thompson, and on behalf of Wallace Lodges and Eric Lyon, we hope you enjoyed this new episode. And if you did, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share this episode with others who may be interested in this topic. And of course, thank you to our audience for listening and going on this journey with us.